In today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations, Bob Arno. Do you mind, sir, for a minute? That's it. What is, did it make sense at all? What's happening, sir? No, you have everything over there, right? That's good. Okay. Do you mind if we say hello? If not, could you keep your hand, sir, on top? Don't lose anything of value now, all right? You keep your hand on the watch. Don't you lose it now, okay? Is it in your pocket for sure? Yes or no? If, if I can take it in, in two seconds. They call him the king of pickpockets. A good pickpocket, if the police catches him two seconds after the lift, there's no evidence. A decent thief is going to, a decent one, is going to make around 100,000 euros a year. He spent decades with the underworld. Uh, the Filipino men were packing guns. They would take my right hand and they moved it over to their jacket here in order to make me feel, aha, there's a gun in there. To make our world a safer place. My... Um, relationship uh, with law enforcement uh, got stronger and it became much more delicate with whom I could interact and not interact. So sometimes my work is to teach others how to build informants or what we're trying to figure out who are the terrorists who are hiding behind various fronts and so on. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire, learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. This is Rob Conrad from Switzerland. If you've ever been robbed, either at home or on the streets, you know it can be a traumatic experience. It's often not so much the loss of physical goods or the hassle of getting your IDs and everything back, but the psychological component. How did this happen? Why me? Why didn't I notice? Could I have avoided it? Will it happen again? And most importantly, am I still safe here? Bob Arno has worked as a pickpocket for more than five decades and is considered the king of all pickpockets. The reason that he's still running around freely is that he's not robbing people on the streets, but on the many stages on all continents of, his, uh, of this planet that he's been touring for the last decades. His shows are amazingly entertaining, but together with his wife, Bambi, who today is behind the camera, he has also been immersed um, in the world of pickpockets and other criminals, both openly and undercover. His invaluable experience makes him a highly sought-after expert by law enforcement agencies all around the world. He's the author of the book, Travel Advisory, How to Avoid Thefts, Cons, and Street Scams, and subject of the documentary, Pickpocket King. I'm glad that today he allowed me to steal something from him, which is a little bit of his time. Welcome, the amazing Bob Arno. Thank you very much for that um, uh, introduction. And I wonder if the viewers could see that my ego gradually was blowing up like a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed with all of the words. I think I need to hire you as my media consultant. How much better than that? Pickpocket King. Yes, that's the label that they have used lately. I guess it's a media term. It makes it easier when they, they you know, want to catch viewers. So if you take uh, National Geographic and the film that we made for them called Pickpocket King, uh, it sort of stuck after that. And it's used very often when I do conferences, when they present me. That's how they quickly get the, the viewers, the attendees to say, that's worth to go and see. It, it raises curiosity. 
That's true. That's true. So um, how does one become a pickpocket? How, how does one start with that career choice? Well, I wonder if you um, want me to tell the viewers here how one becomes a pickpocket. Are we going to raise the level of young people, 16, 17-year-olds who go and do all of those games on computer and suddenly, and they are very, um, shall we say, attached to my, to my films, to my internet presence. And you, you have no idea how often they ask me in the comments, how do I learn that and how do I do this and all of that? Becoming a pickpocket. Well, you know, you can divide it into a couple of divisions, different sections. Oh, and what I mean with that is that you have the theatrical pickpocketing. That's my background. That's what I started off as a young man. And then you have the overspill. That's what I'm doing today, meaning I have merged the street pickpocketing or the real crime by observing them and taking snippets and segments and psychology and pieces, the technique, and I'm bringing it into the show. But I have to be very honest with you and tell you that uh, for the first 30 years of my career, I simply was a theatrical pickpocket. There was no reality based. There was nothing about how it's done in the street. Uh, when I was a young man back in Sweden, if you wonder about my accent, that's another thing. <laughs> when they look on the internet, people wonder, where is he from? You know, South Africa, Holland, Scandinavia. So I know that it's disguised a bit, but I was born in Sweden. <clears throat> well, as a young man brought up in Sweden, uh, I had a hobby. Amateur magic, amateur pickpocketing, a little bit of amateur hypnosis. And we had a market. We had what would be called youth hospits or shall we say clubs that the state, the government, the socialist government sponsored. So they had clubs where maybe 50, 60, 70 kids were, were gathering uh, in various sections of the city, of the main cities and sometimes even in the smaller cities. The idea was get them off the street, get them away from doing something bad. Well, they needed entertainment. And uh, that was my, uh, my stomping ground. That's where I learned. That's where I started off as a bad entertainer in the beginning. You know, when you're 16, 17, what do you know? But uh, it allowed me to be bad, being paid a little bit and to grow. And uh, then I was lucky because I had a mentor or at least if not the mentor, I had someone I could look up to. And that happened when I was 17, 18, uh, a French performer, his name is Dominique, and he is still mm -hmm. alive today, a couple of years older than I am. Well, he came to Sweden to perform in a theater and he was simply sensational. Uh, he is eight years older than I am, by the way. So at the time, uh, he was in his prime, in his 20s. And by meaning prime, he had that youth energy. He looked fabulous. And uh, he was very, very funny. The pickpocketing might not have been the world's greatest as far as stage pickpocketing is concerned. But the reason for being funny is his history, his background was in uh, Comédie Francaise, the, uh, the old French traditional uh, comedy theater. That's where he got his teeth into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a partner who helped him a little bit with designing and making observation of what was bad and good. Well, he came to Sweden and he needed a few assistants. Uh, and when I say assistant, I don't mean that he hired me to be on stage. He certainly didn't mm -hmm. need an assistant on stage. But because 
Sweden didn't have uh, too many English-speaking people in the audience in those years. Uh, they, he and his partner, they hired a few young amateur magicians, me and a couple of others, to go out in the audience to observe, to see potential victims, maybe see their dress mode. Uh, a little bit of help uh, is what he needed. And sometimes mm -hmm. he needed to uh, have us ask people, do you mind if later this man brings you up on stage? Do you speak a little bit English? He sort of smoothed the road for him to make it easier. If I hadn't seen Dominic, I wouldn't be where I am today. That's for sure. So he is the reason. And I say that um, with absolute honesty because most creative people, I think when they are in their 20s or maybe a teenager, whether it's Picasso or whether it's a famous singer uh, or musician, we always respect someone. There's someone who we say, oh, my God, I wish I could be like him. Well, that was the case for me with Dominique. Dominique didn't teach me anything about pickpocketing, nothing about how to remove a wallet and take a watch and all of that. I got the early part of that from a couple of books. Not very good, but they were written for magicians. And mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning, when I started my career, what Dominique did more than any other entertainer, he focused my attention on comedy. And so as a Swede, now I know I'm going on here, but I need to make this really clear so that if anyone is listening in here, how do you become a pickpocket? You will understand my background. Well, I realized uh, by the time I was 20 that comedy, more than pickpocketing, that was going to be my life. So I would be listening on radio um, back in Scandinavia to American entertainment programs and listen to American comedians. I adored them. And I would have a small pocketbook, a notebook in my and any time that I saw something funny in the street with friends in the newspaper, a little reference or some of these comedians, I would write it down. And after a year or two, I would have 10 of those books. They're very small. I still have them to this day. That oh, okay. is how I focused on comedy. And uh, uh, I did not really, shall we say, concentrate on pickpocketing until I was about 23 years old. But I'm talking so much here that I'm going to let you come in with a question or two, because I know you want to know how does one become a pickpocket. But first, I'll let you have a question here, and then I will answer that question. <laughs> Actually, I think you were on the way to explaining what I wanted to ask, but um, it's been a nice introduction. And yes, I wanted to first know how you became a pickpocket, and uh, you've answered it. You didn't go, you didn't come from the streets and ended up on a stage, but you were always a stage entertainer and and focused on um let's say the pickpocketing as a part of your entertainment show um when we talked um in the previous conversation by the way for the viewers this is actually our second interview we did um because the first one we both probably had some technical uh, hiccups and so we uh, and well bob kindly uh, agreed to do this again um you mentioned that your father was a judge uh, back in sweden correct so What did he say when, when his son came to him and said, Dad, I'm going to be an entertainer, plus I'm going to be a pickpocket entertainer? <laughs> you know, we had a, a very a, a, a hot discussion. Maybe, hot, maybe I could exaggerate and go even further there. It was very drastic by the time I was 18 and I entered the military. Um, I, I should use the term, thank God for that, I entered the military because he was on the verge of <laughs> kicking me off. He actually gave me an ultimatum. 
is that if you continue with comedy hypnosis and pickpocketing on stage with our family being traditional and going 500 years back, uh, we, we, oh, I come from okay. a very, shall we say, an, an old family in Sweden. I won't even reveal my my second surname here, uh, but um, uh, it has nothing to do with Arno, by the way. So uh, the point here is, no, he was exceptionally unhappy about the fact that I was doing entertainment. <laughs> but I also have to tell you that when I went out to Asia, which is um, where I really uh, got successful, because there were so many places to be bad and to learn your craft and yet be paid. I could survive being fairly uh, sloppy about it all. Well, um, that is where I learned my pickpocketing. And when I came back to Sweden, at that point, I was 23 years old. I lived in Asia basically for four years. I was darn good as a performer, not necessarily the best pickpocket in the world, but I certainly was the funniest pickpocket um, in at that time, maybe on par with Dominique, except that he had a French charm and I didn't. I was more uh, crude or rude or hard-nosed, uh, similar to the Americans. But um, uh, he respected me suddenly. He was absolutely impressed. He took me in. And from there on in, we had a fabulous relationship until the day he died at age 99 and a half. Wow. And we would be uh, you know, talking to each other every week, regardless of where I was around the world. So uh, it was great. But I am going to, um, to jump back to that first question, because you do want to know, of course, how does one become a pickpocket? Well, if we start off Absolutely. with the stage pickpocketing, I'm just going to very quickly tell you why it's so different, stage pickpocketing, from the street pickpocket. Mm -hmm. On stage or when you're out in the audience, you can bamboozle people, you can distract them, you can touch a shoulder, you can talk to them quickly or loud, you can ask them a confusing question, you can uh, ask them to hold on to the cigarettes or uh, various interactive, aggressive, invading their personal space. That mm -hmm. allows me to distract them. And you could even turn them slightly when you're doing the lift so that um, uh, you have a shield. Well, in the street, none of that happens. There is no talking. You, uh, the victim will go back to the police station a couple of hours later. And the first thing that the officer will say is, what do they look like? Well, do you remember? I have no idea. When did it happen? Well, I don't quite know. I think I was jostled on that uh, station, but I don't really quite remember. So in other words, we have a huge difference. Now, the question as a stage performer, of course, is, is there sources to learn this? And there are a few. There are a couple of mm -hmm. videotapes that they're sold or, or online, you know, uh, pieces. And uh, there are a couple of books. There are not many, maybe a total of two or three. Some of them are just sort of simply pamphlet. They're not really that great at explaining. So if I were to be honest and tell you most of the material that exists today for a young person to become a stage and a pickpocket is basically worthless. The reason is it's based on 1950, 1960, how we were dressed and how we performed and so on. Today, people are in jeans and short uh, T-shirts or whatever. They behave, they move, uh, they sit in clubs different. They don't go to a big showroom where there are 500 people. And where I, as an entertainer, I could scan out in Las Vegas where I have 15 years career. I could look at the old, I could go into the showroom three minutes before my performance, glance at the room, and I could see, aha, 
There sits one man. There is a couple. I could actually grasp very fast where my potential victims are. Real pickpockets, street pickpockets, they do the same thing. They evaluate. But going back to, to um, performing, the club scene today, even Las Vegas, doesn't have this sort of scenario. So it's basically impossible today to become a stage pickpocket. What you can do is to be what we call a walk-around magician. You know, you, uh, you're hired to do uh, 20 minutes walking here and there, and you mm -hmm. take up a sponge bowl and you tell the people, hold it, or uh, a coin, and it moves from one hand to the other. There are various tricks, and you can do a little bit of stealing if you're lucky while you're doing this. Um, but it is not um, sort of an environment like in the past. So for me, where I perform and where I work is basically corporate. And corporate means that, you know, there's a thousand people, a banker's conference in Switzerland or Johannesburg or whatever. And um, uh, those are harder for young people to get, to get booked for. So it's a very yeah. tough scene. But now, what you really want to know is how do you become a pickpocket in the street? Yes. And this before is a long that, answer. Before we do that, maybe we can um, use this moment and um, cut in a little bit of your show and also cut in a little bit of the conversations that you had with real pickpockets on the street so that people can see and understand the difference and also see some real-world footage, both from your show as well as from pickpockets. That's right, a little glance right over here. Good evening, sir. That's right, very good. A little quick look right over here. There we are. You don't mind, right? Okay. Could we say hello for a brief second over there? Let me ask you a question. Did that make sense at all? I want you to hold on to everything there, right? Do you mind, sir, for a minute? That's it. What did, did it make sense at all, what's happening, sir? No, you have everything over there, right? That's good. Okay, do you mind if we say hello here? Hello there, that's right. A little fast look over here. You're, are you right? You look very concerned. Slight hostility here. You paid attention very much, didn't you? <laughs> a fast look over there. Hello there, sir. Allow me to come right over here. You know, are you left-handed or right-handed? I'm right. Okay, you, so whatever you have, reflexes better on that side, all right? You mind if you say hello over here? No, That's right. it. Okay, very good. <laughs> Permit me to come in between here, sir. You appear to be... Are, do you know what's going on right now? Could you keep no. your hands, sir, on top? Don't lose anything of value now, all right? <laughs> you keep your hand on the watch. Don't you lose it now, okay? <laughs> We have enough. All right. It did take a little time there. How many people did we say hello to? We shook hands with about uh, five, six people, am I right? Now, tonight, I'm looking at the brands here. By now, it's clear that you have a, a thief and a con man, am I new? <laughs> now, let me start with the... Uh, no, 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 show them. Take it off, take it off for a second. Take, take, the, take the wallet off for one minute, okay? Let them see you, because otherwise I take it. Take it off. Let them see you. Hold it. Okay. Put it in your pocket. Is it in your pocket for sure? Yes or no? It, if I can take it in, in two seconds, it's not, right? Bob and Bambi hop on the bus. It takes a pickpocket to know a pickpocket. When the bus stopped and some new people came on board, I immediately knew they were not regular passengers. I did not make eye contacts with them. I kind of turned, I let them see the wallet, and they moved closer, so I knew it was going to happen. I never felt the wallet go. In all my years of thief hunting, this has never happened before. They checked my wallet, realized it was empty, dropped it on the floor. Now this was my chance to confront them. This is potentially dangerous. 
These are criminals. If cornered, the pickpockets could turn violent. Now he's smiling, and as I'm saying, you hold it, and see, and as I gave it to him to hold, I took his watch. They volunteered and said, hey, let's go over and have a coffee here together. Bob has his first pickpocket. He's playing a risky game with real criminals. He's not in Vegas anymore. Okay, so we've seen some of your materials. Um, so how does one become a pickpocket? Let's get back to that. Yes. Um, well, you have to understand that I am not about, for the next couple of minutes, tell every 17-year-old young male who suddenly runs out of money for his games on the computer how to go out in the street and grab a wallet from a girl or a phone and sell it somewhere. Uh, but I'm going to tell you how they learn, how pickpockets learn. And what we maybe should know is that real thieves, uh, the ones who do this for a living professionally, they, and I don't talk now about opportunity thieves, because there are opportunity thieves. There are people who are hopped up on drugs and uh, they do stealing now and then because mm -hmm. they need a little bit of money. Uh, but they don't do it every day and they don't do it in a skillful way. So we, we're talking about actual professional. And they have to be in different categories. You have to talk about parts of the world, for example, South Africa, Russia, uh, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, South America. You have Chile, you have Brazil, uh, you have Peru. These are areas where pickpockets come from. North Africa, not to forget. You, you don't have much of pickpocketing in Kenya, for example. You would think so, high crime, not in Nigeria, but you have in Morocco. And so maybe the question would be, why, well, why is that? Well, why of course, exactly you have some pickpocketing everywhere where you've got a lot of people. But it, in many of those places, places that I mentioned, it's more a mugging, it's rough. It's, uh, for example, in South Africa, it's more common that they shove you up against a wall while you're standing waiting on a red light, for example, rip the pocket so that it opens up, so if the fabric falls out like a flap, grab the wallet and dash. And by the time you realize what the hell happened, they're already 50 yards away. The same thing in many places in South America, we call them piranha kids. They are groups of uh, maybe uh, five to 10 kids, and uh, they have a leader, sometimes older, who assembles them. They very simple, often are single mothers, and there are, uh, it's a survival thing. They have no other way. And so the mother can't really take care of them properly. So they're out in the street, they start to uh, uh, smoke and use pot and so forth. And they will have one that uses a knife. They run up quickly, grab, if you follow them around the corner, Mm -hmm. The protector, the older guy with the knife, will stand there and use it. Mm -hmm. Now, he's not stealing. He's just using the knife to stop you. So it's not very smart to pursue in that scenario. But you have very skillful pickpockets, both from Chile and from Peru. And then the question would come, well, why is that? Well, mm -hmm. because you have so many of the locals 
there are some organizers, some kingpins, uh, puppet master who sits at the top, mm -hmm. and those guys recognize who are the good ones. He recognizes because every so often they come back with a phone and they said, hey, I stole a phone. I don't know how to use the card and the numbers and the pin and all of that. Uh, how much are you going to give me? 200 euros or whatever. So um, they will see who are good and who are not good. They'll mm -hmm. lump them together and they send them to Europe to steal in organized groups. But that didn't tell, that didn't explain how they get good. So we need to understand that the techniques of pickpocketing varies from continent to continent. So for example, mm -hmm. in China, you sometimes see them using chopsticks because they shove them down into a pocket. Now you certainly don't see any pickpockets in Romania or in Rome using chopsticks. Uh, <laughs> you, you see a hair tongs in Italy, in, in Naples, for example, we have seen that, you know, those long hair tongs that you heat, mm -hmm. they've used those, and, but it's an old uh, gimmick and it's not uh, terribly common. The minute you use a prop in Europe, whether it is a special razor blade or whatever, if law enforcement catches you with a prop on, it means that you are an habitual, you're a career criminal. And it means that in front of the judge, you can't say, oh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 this is the first time I'm doing it. My, uh, my wife, my child is, is hungry, she is sick, I need a little money. And, uh, and the judge you know, slaps them and say, don't do this again. Mm -hmm. uh, so the point that I'm trying to say here, these techniques, uh, they start out when they are young. They could be anywhere from 14 to 16. They hang with groups, for example, in Romania, where one is older, could be four or five mm -hmm. years older. And that person teaches the others some of the moves. So why it's important to have a group is that a good pickpocket team, which could be, for example, three people, will have one who slows down the victim, narrows the path, corners them as they are about to enter the subway, for example, or um, uh, on an escalator or entering the lift, a, a revolving door in a hotel lobby, anywhere where they can kind of jostle you a little bit. Maybe a bag they carry and they brush it against your leg and said, oh, I'm sorry. Well. Mm -hmm you're gonna feel that bag against your leg more than you're gonna feel the actual extraction mm -hmm. of your wallet or your mm -hmm. phone from an other pocket. So, by, so you're not gonna learn pickpocket at age 16 or 22 or 29 on your own. There's no way where you wake up one morning, even if you're poor in Rome or in Paris, and you say, you know what? I lost my job, tomorrow I start being a pickpocket. That's not gonna happen. It's always gonna be somebody else. It could be in prison, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, very often uh, the Moroccans are coming in illegally into Europe and uh, they get hired, building sites or whatever, but they're not there legally. And so after two, uh, six months, the construction site is down. It goes down the economy or whatever, and now they're out of mm -hmm. job. They do a little burglary, they break into a car, they get. Uh, caught by the cop and now they're in jail and there in jail others are getting them together as a group and teach them how to do pickpockets so now when they come out of prison now they um, uh, work on the lower end meaning in the beginning they're doing the shabby work in the team uh, one team member 
once the wallet is stolen, if they're really good, let's say on a subway in, in Italy, one removes the wallet, he never holds it. A good pickpocket who is senior, he's maybe 30 or, or more, he, if the police catches him two seconds after the lift, there is no evidence. <laughs> because as soon as he has lifted it, he's passed it on to another member who may have a yep, soft yep. bag. There's also something we've seen in the, in the video segment uh, that we've just shown. Correct. So you see that where someone takes it out, puts it in the back, and then... Uh, um, in, instantly, instantly. So that's <laughs> very, very important. Now, what does happen is that suddenly you now have to share the money between the three members. Guess who gets the most money? The guy who is senior, who actually lifts the wallet. Mm -hmm. The guy who carries <coughs> probably gets the least money, And the one who creates a good uh, diversion somehow by bodily moving the victim in position. Because sometimes the wallet is in a pocket where the thief can't get to it. But if the, the, the guy who is good can steer or just a fraction of a nudge with a shoulder or a leg, getting them to move it. Or, for example, move up to the bottom part of the jacket. Just mm -hmm. fraction move it out so that the thief can get his hand in they become so well coordinated that uh, they become valuable and it becomes known all across Europe. So these various groups that are formed, mm -hmm. they know after a few years that so-and-so, Giano or Marcus or uh, whatever names they have, they get known for being on the pecking order and they form their teams according to what they need. They lose a little of their respect if they serve a lot of time in prison, because now it means that the police know the records and facial recognition or cameras and whatever they can be spotted. So you don't want to serve too much time. Mm -hmm. Have you understood or do you, under, do, you, do you understand now what I mean with all of these techniques of understanding the top part of the wallet, for example? Mm -hmm. You want to know the wallet how much below the top edge, where does it sit? If it is sitting three centimeter, it means your finger has to go down further down. Maybe there has to be a movement from below, from the other hand to kind of kick it up a bit. Is it enough to just clip it? How thick is it? Do you hold it with your nails and drag it out? Or is it with your two fingers? All of these things, a good pickpocket, it becomes second nature. You know, it's like bicycling, they know how to do this in their sleep. Yeah, okay, okay. And so it's basically something you have to grow into, literally. You have to be taught by someone who has more experience. Um, what I was wondering is what kind of characters are these pickpockets? Because when I saw your documentary, um, you, the documentary, you work closely with a group of pickpockets and one of them says, um, I'm actually ashamed of what I'm doing. And I was surprised by that because I was wondering, oh, okay, probably I would have expected that they are kind of proud of what they're doing. Like they're, they're skilled, they're, they have techniques, so they might even be proud. So I was so surprised to see a pickpocket saying, I'm ashamed of what I'm doing and I would love to do something else. So what, 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 what are these characters? Uh, I, I really like that question. Of course, I am um, uh, equally fascinated myself, even although I have lived among them for 10 years. So I know, you know, basically how they wake up in the morning and what they think and how they go to bed. But uh, yes, their deep character is something that I'm very intrigued about. Not just pickpockets, by the way, all criminal minds, 
all mm. career criminals, all, shall we say, great con men, people who are at the very top, who are certainly not satisfied with making 6,000 a week by stealing wallets and phones, uh, but want a lot more. I want to know what, what is it that, uh, you know, their, their mindset. But if we take pickpockets and the question would be, what kind of moral fiber is inside? Mm -hmm. How often exactly. is there a shame factor? Uh, are they aggressive? Are they psych psychopathic? Uh, have they been hurt as young people and uh, they want to take it out on society? It, a lot of it has to do with what part of the world they come from and how mm -hmm. they have been treated in their home countries. So if you divide, for example, uh, gypsies from East Europe versus non-gypsies, and we have pickpockets from both societies. Well, the gypsies is very easy to understand because they were mistreated for about a thousand years from the time they left India and came to Europe. And uh, when they came in uh, two or three hundred years ago into Central Europe, they were shunted out. You know, they had to live in other areas and the rest of society. There were uh, uh, gates around the, the places. They, wouldn't, they weren't allowed to go into the same schools as the rest of society. So, of course, it was very easy for them to say, Gaijin, outsider, foreigners, and us, we, they have a different sense of what belongs to me and what belongs to you. If they see something sitting valuable, um, in a coffee shop and you're not looking, they feel they have as much right to that item mm -hmm. as you have. You know, they have, they were very often, they tell me, I, I understand that this is your wallet, but you have to understand I need money too. So I, I need that money that you have. That's their philosophy. That's very hard for us to comprehend. The mm -hmm. ones that you saw in the movie were not gypsy, they are regular Italians. Uh, unique, because in Naples, where it was filmed, they don't really permit pickpockets from other parts of the world to come down and work. So you really see the core value. Granted, it's a poor area, unemployment is very high. Mm -hmm. Certainly in the 40s, 50s and 60s, it was exceptionally high. So, you know, um, it was a desperate scenario. That's why you have the Camorra crime syndicate building up within that society. Uh, so their idea of uh, a Catholic right and wrong, they do go to church. They do believe in what the church is saying. They sense very much inside what they're doing. They claim that they don't steal from old or from poor people. They claim that they steal from tourists or from wealthy people uh, who can afford it. So that particular individual, very often, they understand darn well what they're doing. And they would like to shift if they could but they don't have the education, they're in the habit of the money they're making, doesn't make sense for them to move. But do not believe for a minute that what I just painted now, that information that I just gave you, does not apply to other cultures. So for example, the North Africans or the ones from East Europe or from Poland or wherever they happen to come from, they have different yardsticks. They measure this right and wrong in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you um, take uh, a regular great pickpocket from, um, uh, from Romania, for example, he's not gypsy, uh, poor country, was communist before. It just happened that they built, when they were teenager, they got really darn good at this, really, really good. 
a hell of a lot better than a young poor kid from Finland, for example. <laughs> you know, Finland has only something like three and a half million people. But um, mm -hmm. you didn't have a culture where this sort of built up. I think the, the, the poverty of communism fostered a society where you grab what you can. And so I don't think today, this year, that we have young Romanian pickpockets starting in this trade. I think it's something that belongs to 10, 15, 20 years ago. Oh, okay, okay. 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 So, um, I mean, nowadays it's it's a sensitive topic to kind of stereotype people by their their you know racial identity um, or where they come from. But what you've seen in your on the streets, um, there are those differences between you no know, pickpockets from say Romania, from from South Africa, from from South America, and other countries. So they have different techniques. They have different reasons to start and. Um, Well, they all have a different heritage in a way. Yes. Um, you know, it's crystal clear that if you talk with a police officer today in Europe and they analyze and they, they scrutinize, they look at the, uh, the cameras and how they behave and then they do some interrogation after, uh, it, it, um, they know themselves exactly. They can sort of pinpoint ne nearly. They can throw a dart and say, 90%, I believe, from the way they behave, that they're from this area, from that area. Well, it doesn't, you know, when you want to catch them, it doesn't really matter where they're from. What does matter is if you bring them in front of a judge and, and you want to have the sentence stick. And so what goes on into their brains and their mind, I don't think that I am the one who should be doing the analysis exactly uh, that where their heart and their moral yardstick is. It's... Um, It's a very, very complex. And it's something that I think there are psychiatrists and there are professors all across Europe who are discussing these things. Um, you know, you probably have a lot more hardened criminals who steal millions and millions from financial fraud, for example, mm -hmm. uh, stock market, uh, real estate deals, uh, uh, bad advertising where you sucker people into, selling uh, meat that you should have thrown away from the food chain and whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, I would like to ask, if you take the uh, uh, sales manager in Stockholm or in Amsterdam, who said, you know, if we um, um, call this fish old and we throw it away, we're going to lose 100,000 euros here. Come on, let's say nobody will know we sell it. Well, mm -hmm. where do you put that individual in terms of moral values and compare them with a pickpocket mm -hmm. from, uh, from Paris who is stealing because he has no other way 60 euros that day? So the, di the dialogue about all of this could be endless. Yeah, I understand. Um, talking about numbers, what kind of money can a proficient goods pickpocket, senior pickpockets make in a capital like Paris, like Barcelona, like, like maybe Naples? What's the kind of money they can make? Uh, it's, an, it's another interesting uh, question because it varies so much. And, and the reason why it varies is that a really experienced pickpocket Let's assume he's 40 years old, 45. Let's assume that he served time once in jail somewhere in Europe. So he's in Europol's record. He doesn't want to be back in, in prison again. He knows that if he teams up with some members, the minute they are a group, it is easier for law enforcement to see the pattern of these people moving. 
Mm-hmm. They have to enter into the uh, uh, subway car, metro car. Uh, they have to kind of move in tandem in some kind of synchronous. There might be apart by many yards, but they're still moving together. So that group, it's safe for them, and they will be able to look at the pin number as in the when you press in and you buy your ticket, for example, mm-hmm. on the board when you shove in your credit card and you put in the number, they may do what we call shoulder surfing. So they stand from the side and they see the number. They follow you for 20 minutes until the moment is right and they lift the wallet. But now they have to remember which of the four or five credit cards that they saw. So they might have two people to make all of this observation and a third one. So the group is three or four, but they can make 6,000 easy, if not more, from Mm -hmm. each card because they can instantly go out and purchase something. Uh, whether it is a plasma screen or a computer or Mm -hmm. whatever. Lots of money, it has to be divided, but the threat factor for them, the risk is much higher. So a good pickpocket who wants to not serve any time, who doesn't want to be caught by the police, he's going to work alone. So Mm -hmm. police will never have a chance to capture one guy and say, if they catch him, I'm going to give you two years in prison unless you tell me one of the members where do you live? They want to follow okay. him back. They want to see who else is staying there. They might not even tell him that they are tracking and following, but they do. So now they see who else is in there. They have a, a better way of tracking. I see. So um, a single guy is not going to be able to do that thing with a credit card. He's only going to dep- de- live off what is in that wallet. Cash, for example, or maybe the phone. You can steal the phone. He can go to a place and sell it. And mm-hmm. if it's an Android, there's no problem. He's going to get the nice value. If it's an Apple phone, basically it's the part. It has to be uh, sent off to uh, the Middle East where they lump them together. And, and you know, it's, a, it's more an organized crime scenario. Mm-hmm. Have you understood what I mean with the difference in money? So yes, a smaller guy, he's going to maybe make uh, 1,000 euro, 900 a week. Um, sometimes he's going to be lucky and he's going to hit the tourist where there's more money. The others are going to be, every time they steal a card, it's going to be four or 5,000. Okay. Okay. So we are talking pretty good amounts of money. So, so, um, even 1,000 a week. In, a decent, in, uh... a decent thief is going to, a decent one, good mm-hmm. one is going to make around a hundred thousand euros a year. A, Which is, is one a respectable who is safe income, and by all means. Place yeah. it very safe is going to make sixty thousand, fifty thousand. Okay, okay. So we're talking really about respectable incomes here. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, talking about tourists, um, could you characterize the typical victim? What are pickpockets looking for in a victim? Is there is there are those people who are traveling alone or traveling in groups? Is it a certain um, nationality they're looking for? Is it a certain behavior? So is it shy people? Is it people who dress expensively? Is it the typical tourists with sandals and you no know, shorts and white socks? What are pickpockets looking for? It's such an interesting question. And I have to tell you that I get this over and over. And, um, you know, people, people want to know, is it just the stupid people who gets, uh, become victim? And that's just not true at all. Is it the ignorant people? And that's not true either. It's basically non-informed, <clears throat> that's number one, 
kind people, <clears throat> excuse me here, people who um, love society and others and is open and friendly. Hardened, cynical, quick, jittery, nervous individuals are not so often the victim. Mm, so okay. here is what uh, happens. The thieves are evaluating his crowd and they can instantly, if, you, if, if they walk on La Rambla, for example, not that there's much pickpocketing there nowadays, it mm. used to be many years ago, but they can, I have walked with them and they will tell me, they will whisper to me, see that guy there, see how his jacket hangs more on the right side down mm. than on the other side. And but this is from the back, is. walking maybe mm -hmm. three meters behind. I said, yeah, I, I, I see that, but what the hell does that mean? Well, it means that his wallet is upstairs. Upstairs means the top pocket, not the hip, mm. pocket, not the hip ah, pocket, okay, okay. inside on one side. So he's used with that. Well, of course, this is not science. It doesn't mean that everyone who has a bad shoulder and slants has a wallet there. But anyhow, they, they look at all of these things and I do the same thing today. So for the last 10 years, when we're, you know, I can't stop this. It's 180 degrees. Everywhere I look, I see. So I see the opening of the pocket. I see the gaping part of the lady's handbag. <laughs> I see where her eyes are. I see how cheery they are together. I see how businessman is hardened or some lady just puts very tough the bag under her arm and she clenches it and you see a little bit of more of a stern look on her face. You don't see a smiling, happy face and a grasping bag. There are certain things that go against each other in the awareness level. So on my film, The Pickpocket King, that is on YouTube, it's got, uh, as we speak, about uh, five, six million views. I get comments below and very often there are comments where they say, two years ago, I was in Amsterdam and I had seen your film and they still stole my phone or they stole my wallet. <laughs> uh -huh. And then they say, and you know what? Last week I was in Paris and they stole again. How is this possible? <laughs> you know what it proves? It proves that you, the guy who wrote this thing, didn't learn your lesson on the first time mm -hmm. and you let it happen the next time. Well, when I see let it happen, so if I take myself and my wife, if we are in a Starbucks coffee house in Madrid, we are not going to put our bag with the phone on the floor at our table and go up six yards to the counter and get another package of sugar. We are going to have line of sight all the mm -hmm. time and preferably we're going to have physical body contact with the stuff that's important and if we are out and about in an area where we know for example 11 o'clock where we know that there could be mugging in athens or wherever we will ask the hotel lobby is it smart to walk on that street back or do we need mm -hmm. to take a taxi uh, if we are in parts of africa we want even Taker or South America, we won't even take a taxi without asking the hotel. There are three taxi companies here. Are they all equally safe? Can I just call them up? And they will say, you know, avoid those two because you mm -hmm. never know if the driver is working with the thief. 
and go for the third one. In other words, depending on where you are, you have to take that extra precaution. But your question was, how do they know who is a typical victim? The person who has not understood in advance where all of these threats can happen, which is not to say you should destroy your trip uh, to the Greek Isles in the summer and start thinking that around every conceivable corner, there is a mugger <laughs> or a thief or a pickpocket. Have fun, take a little bit of risk, but why do you need cash? I mean, uh, five euros and the rest is credit cards. So for example, three credit cards, one you leave in your hotel, mm -hmm. in a metal bag or in the safe, and two cards could be American Express and an opposing. I say opposing because I prefer American Express first because it gives me more various sorts of points. And then the second card, whether it's Master or Visa or whatever bank it is, there are places where American Express, they wouldn't even accept it. But uh, I also like a card that can instantly be given to me again if it's stolen. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I'm unfortunate, if I'm in Russia and they actually steal it, with a little bit of physical harm. I mean, the club scene, 11 o'clock, I shouldn't have been there. I took a drink, someone put, uh, you know, a, and um, uh, some chemicals in it. Well, um, I, if they, for any reason, steal my credit cards, I want to be able to call up and within 24 hours, I want a new card. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen with every company. Okay, okay. So, so, um, what are these lessons or these precautions that people can take? I mean, don't be stupid is one thing, so don't leave your bag open on the floor. Uh, I guess don't no, walk around with an open bag and your wallets on top of it and your phone on top of it. But what are general precautions that people can take? I think, you know, the first thing is to change your attitude. So for example, if I have friends, so I happen to live in America, in Arizona, and uh, I get friend, fr friends who are saying, I have my kid, they're 18 years, they're going together with five other kids, they're going to Amsterdam. What am I supposed to tell him? Tim him or tell her? So it's different things to tell a boy or a young girl. They are both teenagers, they both think they know everything there is to know. They certainly don't think that there is any advice that they need from the older people. So you have to rock them a bit and say, hey, come and look at this mood here. You really think you know everything? Hey, check this out, it can happen. So the ones who go, when I go into a police station in Europe, whether it is Berlin or Barcelona or Paris, mm -hmm. let's say 11 o'clock, the main stations where the tourists go and report that something happened. Do you know who are standing in line? Young people who have good faith in humanity, in others. Mm -hmm. And older people, very often people who are 50 or older, unfortunately, you asked me before about their heart, their moral values. They don't have compassion for the older people and older people are easier to steal from. Not just that they move slow, but their brains aren't moving as fast when it comes to quickly being cynical. If someone is saying, is it 5.30 when this closes or open? The person who is 60 years old and he is the uh, first time in Europe on some um, you know, two-week trip. He believes that that person is for real when they ask that question. 
A 42-year-old from Germany has been reading all of the articles about being travel savvy. He is going to say, I don't know who this person is. I wonder. And so they start reacting, letting their antennas go up. So the point here that I'm making is inexperience. So you're going to have your antennas go up the minute something doesn't sound right, the minute you get approached or somehow, you know, when they make that first kind of little gimmick or stunt to you. You know, there is something that uh, when it comes to advice that is really important. Uh, one thing is uh, where you are, meaning public transportation, for example, anything that's crowded, a sport place, club scene in Europe, a festival, music festivals in the Netherlands, in England, in France. Uh, sometimes, I, you know, they, uh, the police keep saying, oh, could you come and speak to our police officers because we have a big festival? Uh, mm -hmm. Could you please come and, and uh, tell the, of the officers? They're not, they're not used to it. So the thieves are descending on those festivals. Sometimes if the festival is, for example, three days, a thief mm -hmm. will walk away with 60 phones and they have clothes where the rubber is sort of expanding, where they just shove them in. And sometimes <laughs> the police manage to catch them and they shake them and 60 phones drop out. You know, it's just <laughs> truly unbelievable, the scene that goes on. <clears throat> so uh, these areas where you have crowds, where your guard is down, of course, the thieves love it. Uh, Venice, where everyone is crowded. But in Venice, the, the, the pickpocket have to be very, very cautious because the police are really on the ball as is local security companies that are working uh, in tandem together with the police because they don't want the reputation that pickpockets yeah. can have an easy time. So it's, it's a cat and mouse. Uh, so what I would say when it comes to good advice is where are you going and how are you going to travel? If you're mm -hmm. on a cruise ship and you're traveling around in the Mediterranean and you're only five hours in each city, maybe nothing will happen because you're not going to use too much of public transportation versus if you're six days on your own in Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, so it depends, in other words, where you are. The other thing is Altinasia, just to take a couple of different continents here. Uh, Vietnam, you have to be cautious about. The club scene in Thailand, you have to be cautious. Uh, Malaysia, not much. Singapore, basically nothing. Uh, um, uh, Philippines, very little, unless you use those really, really cheap local uh, transportation vehicles, which is very unlikely mm -hmm. that the tourists will do. Japan, nothing. Uh, Korea, nothing. China, yes, but in certain areas, and we're back to public transportation. So, um, Latin America, anything below United States, our corner with the borders, whether you are talking about the Mexico or Panama or Brazil and so mm -hmm. forth, different areas more than, than others. And when I mention all of these places, well, Europe, of course, uh, there are some places where it's very safe, very little. Oslo, mm -hmm. for example, uh, Helsinki, two capitals, small percentage. But good pickpockets know this. So they come in in the summer for maybe mm -hmm. 10 days, a troop, five, six guys, to steal in the hotel lobbies in, or, for example, mm -hmm. during the breakfast time. So they go in the breakfast restaurants 
People don't expect pickpocketing there, and they're in for two or three days. By that time, all the security have caught them on cameras. Now they move. They're no longer there. So what I meant with all of this, quickly as I go from territory to territory, is it's territorial, and it's also a time of the year. Okay. Why is it, for example, in Japan, where you have these crowded trains, um, you say there's no pickpocketing, and in and, and South Korea um, also not. So wh where are the differences coming from? Is it a cultural thing? Is it is it because pickpockets, I would expect they are not bound to any location. They have to travel around anyway. They have to move from location to location anyway. So why are they not going to Japan? Well, someone looks might be one thing, but um, in general, what, what's what's the reason why they're not why Japan, for example, is a safe place? You know, talking about the statistics of different areas and crimes and, and you know, first uh, and maybe even more, more interesting is why is it nearly zero in Singapore? In 1959, when it became independent, uh, it was a, a drug infested, tremendously crime infested area. Well, the new prime minister, he had 90 percent of his officers going undercover. They walk in the street. And the minute they saw anyone who was doing uh, drugs or whatever, they would drag them off, put me never in front of a judge. They just mm -hmm. disappeared off the mm -hmm. charts. And uh, they decided, uh, the regime, that crime, they were going to stop in his tracks. So, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, uh, serving time in a prison is not pleasant if you are a criminal in Singapore. And secondly, it's just a society where um, it's not happening. This type. So it's very, very safe. Do they have financial fraud? Do some people rip off each other when it comes to selling, uh, you know, real estate, whatever? Well, that hasn't stopped. But um, Japan has a similar culture and it just isn't when uh, people are brought up, the, the young people. For example, the fifth, for, I should mention that you did have pickpocketing in the 50s. But uh, once Japan took off as a financially secure socialist society, mm -hmm. um, it, 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 it never happened. And also there is the embarrassment, shaming your family or others close to you mm -hmm. that you were caught being a thief. Now you do have a criminal syndicate. That's why you have the Yakuza and the guys who cut their fingers off to show that you're members of that crime syndicate. Mm -hmm. So, but they run uh, the brothels and the clubs and, and a certain scene. And uh, to what extent that's brutal crime or not, that's for others to discuss, not for me. But within the whole society, no, you don't have pickpockets. Uh, Korea, you have pickpockets, very small percentage-wise, mm -hmm. percentage in relationship to the size of the country. China is a different story. Have you, oh, um, do you understand what I mean with why um, we don't see it. There are deeper reasons, but once we go into those reasons, we're starting to talk about the baggage of culture and what culture mm -hmm. means over a four or five hundred year period and how those on the outcasts who are on the outside of society, whether they, the rest of society takes them in and helps them and so forth. So then it becomes almost racist analytical aspect and uh, i don't think that's the platform uh, absolutely absolutely um so w um in your book as well you you mention um a lot of good tips things to look out for 
And uh, we talked a little bit about this. You know, if, if you, you know, being cornered, if you're being squeezed in between two people, if you're being brushed, stuff like that. Um, and so there are th certain things that you can potentially look out for. Um, if I if I'm on the streets in whatever country it is, and I notice that no, I'm being cornered, I'm being squeezed in between two people. People are starting to act weird around me, and I notice it. What's a good reaction to that? Should I scream? Should I grab them? Should I? Right away, what's a good situation? Is it dangerous to do that yeah, potentially? What, um, how, do, how do we react? Um, generally speaking, uh, except in Central Europe, generally speaking, when you are approached by criminals in societies <coughs> and territories where you're not familiar. So, for example, if you are a uh, Dutch or a uh, Irish tourist and uh, you're down in Africa, Nigeria or Johannesburg, and you get cornered in something, you never fight or give up too much resistance because you don't know how large that group is. And that individual, what does he live on? On one euro, one dollar a day, slightly more, slightly less. So he doesn't care about the value of life. So it's really not mm -hmm. worth to tangle. And that certainly applies in Latin America, everywhere. I don't mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. Where you are in South America, you simply have to be passive. You can have a small amount if you get mugged that you simply give up. Mm -hmm. It's a little more tricky in Europe how we behave if we do get accost accosted. If you, um, if it's dark, if it's on the street and an alley, uh, I have seen lots of people who've been knifed in Barcelona. So, uh, you know, it's a fantastic city from a tourist point of view. I mean, one of mm -hmm. the greatest places on earth in terms of having fun and tourism, but there is a threat factor lurking around there. So mm -hmm. uh, generally, if you're on the metro, you can shout uh, and say, hey, give me back. You took my wallet. And it's very likely that whatever you do like that is uh, if they're still on, which is very unlikely. The more likely mm -hmm. is that they stole <laughs> just when the door opened and closed and you realize it uh, 10 seconds later. And by that time, the doors are already closed. But if you do that little accosting, <coughs> they're going to throw it on the ground. So, for mm -hmm. example, bus 64 in Rome going from Met, from the uh, terminus station over to the Vatican, there the thieves are going to be on board. And while you're squeezed there in the rush hours, they're going to still be on board. So if you do, if you do uh, make a fuss, you will mm -hmm. very likely get your wallet back with your IDs, but not necessarily with your cash. So okay. if it's uh, young females, and you should know that in Europe, it's just as likely that the pickpockets are female as they are male. And so, of course, you can um, give up some fuss. Uh, but uh, if they are North Africans, you should not be uh, um, uh, too violent back or too forceful uh, because they have a different attitude to all of this. They nearly like the confrontation. Uh, or take a pride in front of their friends on what to do. So you can mm -hmm. be lucky and they smile and you get it back. And it's just as likely that uh, it will be a worse scenario. Okay. Okay. And uh, also you mentioned in your book um, to carry a bit of give up money with you uh, in those areas. It's a good idea to have a little bit of cash to, or maybe some cards that are not working to hand out to someone, especially if you get it being mugged in that situation um, so that you can, well, at least get away with, uh, hopefully lucky. 
Don't yeah, deny. you know, that's a very complex scenario because um, obviously if you do get mugged, uh, the likeliness of you taking up your wallet and opening it up and dragging out the money that you're about to, to give and so forth, mm -hmm. that's complex. Uh, maybe a better scenario is that you have two. So if you are, if mm -hmm. it's late and you're out in the, in, the, in the scene, so to say, you could have some kind of money belt or some kind of strap from, from inside where you carry the important things. And then you have a crappy cheap wallet with very little in it, 20 euros, for example. And you say, and you say, hey, and you know, I have this, hey, you can have this, you can have everything in it, give it to him. And as soon as he grabs it, you you move in the opposite direction. He is going to assume that's all you had. Okay. Okay. Um, in the documentary, you have, uh, you talk about your special wallet that has been stolen from you 150 times by the time you made the documentary and uh, probably a lot more times in between uh, since then. Um, so you uh, often purpose uh, on purpose um, have been stolen from. Uh, but has there ever been a situation where someone took something from you um, without you noticing and without you intending to be stolen from? All right. That was a narrow question. <laughs> Why? And then it went narrow. So yes, I've had uh, that wallet, you know, stolen 150 times because it's a great way to start opening a dialogue. You know, mm -hmm. if they take the wallet, I wait maybe 10, 20 seconds and I smile and look at them. So I make them think that I'm not police officer. And then I may say, <laughs> you know, so I make them think that we might be in the same part. Now, they get really surprised and they, they look at my shoes. They want to know if I'm law enforcement, if I can give chase, if I can run. So uh, they want to see, examine if I'm carrying a gun in a holster down by ankle or something like that. So yeah, I want to make sure that they realize that I'm not law enforcement. And then I want to have a dialogue. That's why I want them to steal the wallet. It may have only uh, old Russian rubles or some other crap uh, currency. So <laughs> there's nothing. But they, they realize there's money as they look, but they, they realize fast, hey, it's worth nothing. So I have an opening. But your question really is, did it happen when I didn't expect it? One time. Oh, so I'm, uh, this is a long <laughs> time ago. We are in, actually it happened twice, I should tell you. The first time was in Vietnam with a friend of mine. Uh, where it's kind of was supposed to happen. It was more shortchanging. So we were in a, I was with an undercover cop uh, in Saigon and uh, uh, we wanted to change money. And in one scenario, they kind of grabbed it, um, but they were going to give us money. So they were counting it up and there's a shortchange move where they flip half of the money that they have mm -hmm. just counted. So you never actually get all of it. And then they take the money you have to give them. And then they mm -hmm. run and say, hey, there's police over there. So you think you got all of it. But in actual fact, you got only 50%. Now, the, the guy that I was with, since he was a, a CIA guy, we were just amused by the whole scene. So just as he was about to run, he grabbed his hand. I grabbed the other hand. And he happened to have a watch on there. And the strap broke. So I had his watch. And we had all of the money <laughs> and all of that. And then, you know, the guy took off. So uh, that was for real. But Rolex, I, I bought the Rolex um, many years ago and I walked in Naples and uh, on, a, on a Saturday evening. <clears throat> no, sorry, Saturday afternoon with my mm -hmm. wife. And they came behind us, three guys on one scooter. They turned mm -hmm. off the motor. So we never heard it. And then one guy grabbed me from behind with his arms around me. 
I instantly thought, someone has seen my show and is playing a stunt on me. So mm -hmm. I didn't react. I was just kind of smiling. But out of the corner of my eye, I see my wife hitting the guy over the head <laughs> with her umbrella. Uh -huh. It breaks in half and he continues the move. And the other guy is, is now grabbing the watch, the strap in order to break the pin, because that was the intention in order to steal the Rolex. Mm -hmm. You steal, you, you break where the link is the weakest, mm -hmm. which is the actual pin that holds the strap together mm -hmm. with the watch. Mm -hmm. So I still have the scar tissue from the sort of the nails that moved of his oh. finger in. Well, at that point, I shoved my heel into his foot and mm -hmm. uh, I shouted, Polizia, and he kind of uh, uh, cried out, dashed back onto the scooter, they drove off, and I still have my Rolex. Well, <laughs> 10 years after that happened, I felt very embarrassed, very stupid. Uh, a newspaper, ma a magazine in Germany wanted to do a story on mugging, so we went in to this area to see if we could have it done again with hidden cameras, and uh, we, we did. <laughs> so you, so you, someone took it from you? Well, the second time around, in order to get it uh, really funny, so we, they, they drove around. I bought, uh, by the way, in the morning, a cheap Rolex, a replica, <laughs> and, and wore. And then I heard the whistle sign, so I know there was a grandmother sitting up there in the window looking down. And she, <laughs> maybe on the phone, told her grandkids, uh, come by and the tourists are here. Uh, and so they, they circled me twice, and I recognized it. And then a second scooter blocked the oncoming traffic about 30 yards further up. So traffic couldn't come down. Uh, and the other one, they stepped off their scooter and approached mm -hmm. into me to grab that Rolex. At that point, just as they reached into me, I ran into their scooters and tipped it over. And there was this amazing surprise on their face. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. It's and and um, I have to mention you have uh, on your website bobarner.com, um, also your wife um, is and yourself uh, writing a lot about different uh, scenarios and encounters, and I recommend everyone to to check out your website definitely and and read it. Um, especially I noticed there was one um, one article about um, how uh, the ta tactics have changed because you now Rolexes now have different clasps, so you need two people to actually grab it off. And so when you're driving, they're going to like hit your mirror and then they're going to burn you know, with your I cigarette if it's on the other so it's... Um, what happened with the Rolex scenario. Uh, and this is um, when I was working with some undercover cops in, in Europe. And uh, uh, in Italy, of course, it's a very sensitive area. So those guys in uh, Europe, when they are working undercover, whether it has to do with terrorism or uh, uh, military or uh, Camorra, uh, or um, syndicates that are a little tougher than just pickpocketing, they don't always uh, cooperate with other nations. Sometimes they want to keep their informants. It's a mm -hmm. very sensitive issue. And the coordination and the help between different nations is um, very strange. It should be perfect uh, coordination between each nation, but, but it isn't. In any case, I'm mentioning this simply because the Italians are a little bit to themselves. So I am with some really good guys in uh, Naples, and... Uh, I'm asking them, and I'm, when I say guys, I'm talking about now the undercover cops, and I wondered mm -hmm. if they could take me to some of the families that specialize in the Rolex, because I was really intrigued. 
how it's possible there could be that many. I found out from statistics that there is something like uh, 15 uh, Rolex Presidente a week that are stolen, which oh, is kind oh, of a high yeah. number. Well, uh, and so um, they said, okay, we will try. And this is sort of run by a sex segment, I guess you could so call of the of the Camorra. So we come to a, a narrow street inside the uh, Cartier Spagnoli, which is uh, very uh, colorful. And if you want to have a meal inside there and you haven't been there before, I absolutely uh, suggest that you should aim for that because it's um, really a true Italian feeling with the music and the food and the charm and the warmth, all of that. So uh, we're coming to a, a building where there are some women sitting outside in their typical little white uh, chairs. And there are some guys standing outside a huge iron gate with Rottweilers on short mm. leases. And in the gate is an opening about this big with a sliding thing. So my uh, my cop friend goes up there and he has a little conversation and he says, there's this American pickpocket guy who is so intrigued. You think he can talk with the boss? Uh, he wants to have a little chat. Uh, would you enjoy that? And sometimes, you know, there is coordination and cooperation, I should say. So meaning sometimes the police will have a relationship because they exchange information. They look the other way for certain crime as long as the the hardened stuff, the murder and the killing and all of that, they keep that under wrap. So they said, okay, wait a minute. So it takes a few minutes and then the guy comes down and said, you know, the boss is in jail, but his, uh, but his son is out. You can talk with the son. <laughs> and a 24-year-old kid comes out, muscular, looks very wealthy and his clothes and everything. And he's starting showing me the moves, how they're doing it and they're rapping and blah, blah, blah. And I uh, show a little bit of video from my Las Vegas show. And before we know it, we are uh, really buddy buddies. So through this, it, uh, I got the invitation from some of these other guys. And Christmas time sometimes from these people, I get invitation to come and stay there, to <laughs> be with them for three, four days. And at one point when I'm over there, I'm going into the bathroom and it's all gold faucets, you know, where you have the water mm -hmm. coming. I'm saying, you thief, how can you afford this? And the guy said, well, you don't understand, Bob. The real boss who owns this building where we live here, he is in jail serving a long sentence, and I'm here occupying, making sure that others aren't breaking in. <laughs> so it's not really so. <laughs> okay. But, you know, from my perspective, uh, what I wanted, of course, is to uh, get into their mindset. Um, okay, okay. So how is it that you can connect so well with, with these people? Why do they trust you i mean you get a lot of those guys to speak on camera to speak you know for your publications and you um you know you seem to have this notional way of you know getting in touch with them and and getting buddies as you just said with them what what, what how do you do it yeah uh, i think that has changed over the years and so um, in the uh, beginning uh, it was simply that i was outgoing and warm and easy and all of that and my work with law enforcement was not as pronounced and not as dedicated and not as precise. So um, in the beginning, uh, I really didn't tip the hat or, or shall we say, inform who they were. I just took the information, I took it into my lectures, and I gave mm -hmm. that information in lectures so that people weren't simply ripped off. But as my work with law enforcement got more and more dedicated, uh, I guess you could say within segments of Europol, um, my um, 
relationship uh, with law enforcement uh, got stronger and it became much more delicate with whom I could interact and not interact. Sometimes, as it is when you build informants, so sometimes my work is to teach others how to build informants, and that's a skill factor that I'm certainly not going to be sitting here and talking on camera. But, um, you know, everything is about building certain trust and uh, not burning bridges behind you and doing things that both sides can benefit from. I think great politicians, when you take a polarized scenario, when you come from two very opposing views, there has to be a bit of give and take. I see, I see. So um, I think it's a good point to move a little away from pickpocketing and go into more the um, other crimes like like con artists, for example, because you've encountered a lot of um, thieves, con artists from, from all areas of life and no, all countries of this planet, basically. Um, what What's the character of a typical con artist and how does a typical con work? What are the stages of a con? You know, the con and the grifters and all of that, it comes in, in an enormous, shall we say, escalate, a scale from very, very good one. You could say that some of them are psychopathic and some of them uh, simply get the rush factor. They are clever at age 14, 15. Uh, just as clever as anyone else in the in, in the class, maybe even more, shorter attention span, little kind of uh, um, a jittery in some way, and sometimes they fall off uh, in terms of the the school work, and uh, but they are sharp and shrewd, and to sort of survive in society, they fall into the cons and the scam. And I'm not mm -hmm. talking about hardened stuff now with guns and and that type of crime, but um, they get a kick out of the rush factor. So mm -hmm. very often it's uh, it's the dopamine effect, just the same way as games, meaning if you do it every second day and you succeed, you simply can't stop. There has to be another one, maybe even bigger, maybe a, a, mm -hmm. um, more of a payoff. Uh, a characteristic that I see that is um, repeated over and over is um, a smiling, happy, outgoing kind of a persona. They uh, They're not kind of nerdy and close and tight. They are, um, just look at yourself in the mirror. So if I didn't know that you are a good interviewer, uh, that smile that you have, I would say is perfect for a good comment. So they build a little bit of this warmth. They are analytical, uh, they see weakness, And what they do is uh, like a fish or a bait. They hang something out, carrot and the stick, for sure, mm -hmm. that you swallow. And uh, you, you get hooked into that. That is an absolute characteristic. The higher up they go, they, uh, the, the more sophisticated they are. Uh, they are the savoir-faire, the... the uh, The dress, the, their whole persona is, you say, that's a man, that's a woman I would love to be friend with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you, um, sometimes reading their face expression is what's the tricky part, what we call micro expression. Mm -hmm. So the higher up you go, and I would say that really, really good politician, and I mean all the way up at the very, very top. It's a set. Now, some politicians have absolutely good moral values, and I'm not in any way claiming that they're all crooks. But there is an overlap 
in terms of engaging society and others around you that is identical with a good politician and a good con man. Um, very, very <laughs> similar. And where, where they separate is when you read the micro-expression. Uh, some people who are good politicians, and, but they do it from faith and from honesty and from, from commitment uh, to society, you do not see uh, the, micro, the, the, uh, the telltale signs as you mm -hmm. do see in a con man. Yeah, yeah. And um, you sent me an article um, before this interview um, that also uh, talked a little bit about, for example, um, Elizabeth uh, Holmes from Theranos, that's that $9 billion scam, that rising star of, of you know, the uh, venture capitalists. That's, um, for those who don't know, she was uh, um, with 19, she founded a, a company called Theranos and she um, promised to have blood tests that instead of pulling or drawing huge you know, amounts of blood, they could basically do all the tests for a way cheaper price on, on a single drop of blood. And the company went on for like 12, 13 years and people have invested hundreds of millions into that company. And just recently they found out there's nothing behind it. The technology doesn't work. Um, the valuation went from 9 billion to basically zero. Um, she's facing 20 years of jail now. And But she she really scammed some of the most intelligent people, high-ranking politi politicians. Um, Rupert Murdoch invested 100 million. So, so, and, uh, and it's exactly what you say, in a sense. Um, she has this charm, this intelligence, uh, someone to you want to be around with. And that's, and that's a documentary about her um, actually coming out, um, which is talking about exactly that. So, so um, this ability to, to draw people in, it seems to be one of the main characteristics of these large-scale con artists, definitely. Um, it is very hard to summarize and say that every <clears throat> con man is identical to the next mm -hmm. con man and that mm -hmm. you can always read the micro-expression. Uh, there have been a few good ones in America, now serving time, financial guys, where we who are uh, specialists in trying to read microexpression, we could not see the signs. So, for example, one of them uh, we had on camera in Miami when he was examined for some fraud and he was, he was getting away with it. He was accused. When we examined those tapes and we were looking at those expressions where the mo motion were going here and the eyebrows and all of that thing, the very, very... Bess, Paul Ekman, who is an expert, for example, at reading mm -hmm. um, microexpression, we could not see a, a sign of any sort uh, mm -hmm. because the guy is sort of psychopathic. He basically nearly believes his own lies. So that, that mm -hmm. is very, very tough. But I can tell you also that some of the ones that I have examined, or for example, if you take uh, um, Clinton when he was lying on camera about his affair <laughs> with women, There, we, we who are reading expression, we could see what happened with the mouth down and with a few things with eyes and so on. So there are some who are good politicians who, when they're lying, you can see that they're lying. But when I think of the ones that I have seen face to face, mm -hmm. top guys, um, front men, bankers for, uh, for uh, um, drug cartel people, uh, uh, they... Uh, were um, the rush factor, they were, it took a while. For me, it took mm -hmm. three years, four years of being with them before I could recognize these signs.
Ah, okay, okay. I, I, I was just looking at um, uh, something I wrote down from your book. You said, uh, it's, a, it's a quote from Simon uh, Lowell, I think it's pronounced. Um, not, I think it's something like, not every stranger cheats, but every uh, cheat is a charming stranger. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's interesting when you quote just that one, because that particular individual has himself had a con man background. Oh, uh, I wasn't so, aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> he, she should know. Um, I, I don't know exactly if we are trying to find formulas for these people, if we are trying to say that they all, you know, society is full of this. I, I mean, you mm. cannot open up a newspaper today, uh, New York Times or Financial Times, where there aren't feature stories about how the world is moving to viral content, you know, how to push things mm -hmm. uh, in order to sell something and how they manipulate, how corporations are buying 50 influencers to go out and push something in order to have it catch on. Is that morally correct? Is that actually right? So what I'm trying to say here is 90% of everything goes, that goes on around us today is based on a sham and a con and something uh, dishonest. We are becoming more and more um, likely to accept that the moral compass has gone away from mm -hmm. real uh, honesty into where we're starting to accept this behavior. Uh, I find that disturbing. Yeah. And you mentioned that um, you've become somewhat cynical over the years with the you know, downfall of moral integrity that you've seen over the past 10, 20 years in this world. So, Well, I am uh, exceptionally cynical if I take 10 other people around me or 20 or 50 or 100, whatever, uh, because, you know, I go, uh, A, because I work partly in law enforcement aspect, um, whether it is intelligence community in Europe, you know, where we're trying to figure out who are the terrorists who are hiding behind various fronts and so on, or whether we're looking at, at the pickpockets. So I can't turn it off, meaning uh, it's impossible for me to take a key and say, mm -hmm. don't observe anything more today. It happens all the time. So I'm looking at small things, how people move their hand. Is that sincere? Is it not? Is there is a little shiftiness from that woman, how she tries to get affection from that man? Is that guy trying to hit on? Are they trying to sell? Everything I am, mm -hmm. you know, putting in pigeon holes in terms of honesty, dishonesty. So I'm exceptionally cynical and I evaluate all the time. Can not stop it. Yeah, yeah. What would you like to see happen in society? I mean, it's you said it's it's going downhill in a way. So Not being honest well, becomes um, a part of, of the course, accepted reality. Uh, you may have asked similar question to some of your other speakers. I don't know or your other uh, interview object, uh, what we would like to see here. Um, I think anyone today who uh, has some insight and is doing well is very concerned about how society is becoming polarized. It is equally polarized in Europe as it is in America. Today, uh, It's all about that the two sides are now so entrenched that there is nothing anymore said uh, about how to find ground that we can move together as the unit one, but it's about how we can find a small attack on the other side, how we can make the other side being more shitty 
in the mm -hmm. overall view of the world. I don't live in Europe at the moment, so I don't follow the world with my own eyes day to day, but I see what's going on. I see what's happening in Germany and in, in Poland and in uh, Portugal and so on. You know, the political trends. And I think that we're having tremendous polarization in Europe also. Mm -hmm. So um, my feeling is that we have to come back and start from my, this is from my heart. I hope it's not taken as a racist statement, but I feel we have to accept in integration and say that's the only answer to have society move <clears throat> in tandem in a peaceful way. At the same time, we must start respect the various small cultures, whether they are 300 years or 50 years. So if you take <clears throat> north of, of Finland and they have an attitude how they want their life to be, and you have a subgroup in Belgium, the Flemish or whatever, we're going to have to start respect these various culture and in a warm way, allow people to move together rather than shoving it down their throat. Okay. Okay. And in terms of integration, um, do you like to see less of, let's put it this way. Um, so you'd like to see less of trying to become closer to each other um, but more accepting the differences and respecting the differences without attacking each other. Well, you know, I am, for example, um, I came into the United States as a foreigner. I applied mm -hmm. to become an American. So obviously I believe in integration and, and the freedom of movement. I don't, uh, and um, I am in my second marriage and in my first marriage, I was married to someone from a culture in Asia. So mm -hmm. um, I have seen things from, from many, many different uh, um, uh, aspects and culture. I believe that um, y trying to sort of just be uh, uh, culturally one, you know, just letting the right wing in Germany mm -hmm. win at the expense, of, that, that's hope. That's, that's not going to happen. And that's not this, the, the road forward. We're not going to mm -hmm. have just simple winners like that. But at the same time, token, you cannot open up the floodgates. And by that, I mean, if I live in Afghanistan, for example, and I am a weaver and I make $2 a day and I can afford a phone, and I see that young people in the Netherlands are going to clubs, all I can think about is, hey, I want to leave uh, this area and I want to head into Europe. Mm -hmm. But you can't suddenly have... 300 million people from uh, Kenya or from Afghanistan move into Central Europe. That's not going to, that's not possible. So there has to be some sort of um, common sense applied here. Yeah. And I think it kind of closes the circle to what you said um, with regards to pickpockets. At the end of the day, it's about opportunities. So I think what's important is to create opportunities where people are. Because of course it's natural if you if you see a difference in opportunity between where you are and then someone else, um, you're drawn to to the better opportunity. Uh, so I think the the um, solution, if you want to call it like this, is to create opportunities for people in other countries so that they can they can uh, uh, participate in in the wealth we've built as a society. And I know where um, you're going with this. <clears throat> I think uh, what you're trying to say is that. America needs to help South America and Europe needs to help uh, uh, the Middle East. For example, 
and how do, or or Africa. You know, do we send in more money? Do we send in some freedom teachers who suddenly, you know, are you going to be able to send six hundred teachers from Switzerland to Kenya to all of the schools and and give them an idea how to whatever? And I'm I know that I'm very quick here with this, but uh, the idea of helping other nation uh, is is really really clear. But I don't know to what extent many of these cultures are prepared to accept our values. That's true. That is true. But um, I guess that would lead us to another discussion that would probably take another two or three hours at least. So you know, so, you, uh, what you need here is someone who is a, a, a philosophical teacher, someone who mm -hmm. is uh, uh, from United Nations or someone from EU in Brussels who does nothing but sit and analyze these things and have an interview because they are the guys who can sort of put the finger on the... I'm too much of an amateur to have a really good answer on just that particular part. But I can give you an, a small example. This is, is, this is a, a crappy thing to even reveal, but um, uh, EU and Brussels uh, give money um, to schools in Gobmagani to Romania in order for them to help certain sec mm -hmm. sec sections of Romania, and it gets misappropriated. It never reaches where it should be done. It, uh, you know, corruption and whatever. Uh, it, it's um, there's so much shiftiness going on everywhere. So I wish that uh, Europol and other agencies that look into you know, just looking for pickpocket, but looking for financial crime and whatever, that we had more bite into um, uh, corruption. Yeah, yeah. Do you understand what I mean with that? Stopping it. Absolutely. I, I understand. Um, th that's something actually I wanted to ask you um, uh, or to ask about your perspective. Um, in one of the video segments that you sent me, you talk about um, surveillance and um, privacy aspects of surveillance, because probably a lot of issues, not only with pickpocketing, but with other crimes and other misuse of, of whatever resources could to a big extent be greatly reduced, at least put it this way, with more surveillance, more surveillance. Uh, but then there's this whole movement for more privacy and we, you know, we need more privacy and we need to protect uh, whatever everyone is doing. So where do you see the balance in that? What's your opinion of that? Well, you know, I think that the majority of people who have any connection with law enforcement think that cameras uh, is a fabulous way of cutting crime down. Um, so if you take, for example, England, if you take South Africa, when they put up all of the cameras in Johannesburg uh, many years ago, they cut the crime down into half. Then eventually the criminals realized what the cameras are and they kind of circumvented it and it popped up again, but, but not as bad as it was. Cameras is fantastic. Uh, that's how we caught, you know, uh, terrorists in, in England, in London and so on. So, or for that matter, in Brussels or Molenbeek in, in, uh, or in Paris and Brussels. Uh, cameras have a great, great, great impact. The other side of the coin, of course, is that Germany is aware of um, what happened with surveillance in uh, the Second World War and what that mm. led to. And that is a, it's a scar that is still there and they treasure their privacy. Even in Sweden, you know, if you want to put up a camera outside a hotel, uh, you have to have all kinds of permission uh, and go to places to, to get the right to mount it there. And then the, the video can only sit for, for 60 days over here in some story and on and on and on. Uh, but my personal heart on all of this is, yes, 
I think cameras is great. And I don't think you can move against it. I think mm -hmm. we're going into a society. Uh, just look at what happened with the social issues in China. This I don't encourage, by the way, where, you know, they look at how you behave, where, what, what have you clicked on uh, mm -hmm. in 60 days? What did you read? Did you uh, look at uh, uh, irritating uh, uh, sites? And then they do uh, an evaluation. And based on your behavior, where you were, what the internet sites you were on, so they have everything in, in a, a um, chapter where they have grabbed all of the information on you. Now you get permission to whether or not you can go to uh, 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 leave the country for tourists to Hong Kong or mm -hmm. whatever. So, you know, they take it a step, really, really a dangerous trend. So it can be horribly abused. So, so regarding China, you mentioned China. Uh... It is a it is a balance, and the the social scoring that you mentioned. Um, the question always is how how far is too far in terms of these things. And then they say in Beijing you almost cannot cross the uh, red light or the, cross the street without getting a fine automatically sent to you because they are so good at recognizing your face and every step that you're making. So so it is it is a cri critical um, well it's a critical well, point, and it's going to be an interesting development what we're going to see in other countries as well in the next five or ten years and how how society will accept, accept these um, intru intrusions into privacy and where we draw the line between benefits for society and our own personal space and, and privacy, I think. You know, I mean, there is no question here that what we are seeing in China, there are going to be very few people around the world outside of its totalitarian regime uh, that wouldn't say that they have taken it a step too far. What we don't know is, have they really taken it as far as we think we are reading and observing and seeing? Is it, is it really on the money or is it exaggerated news? That I wouldn't know. Uh, I, I think that uh, most other nations would say, hey, this, this is way, way too much. But if you look at uh, crime in uh, England and what they've done with cameras there, the majority of the public society are really behind and accept. I think mm -hmm. there are certain, shall we say, youngish liberal mind um, or maybe very old people who remember the Second World War, but uh, who will say, hey, we've, we've gone too far. <clears throat> I think the general person in the United Kingdom are all for it. If you take law enforcement, we see with our own eyes the benefit of cameras. So there's no question that great cameras um, can match up. And mm -hmm. I mean, we can even see, you know, a motion of a hand or the inside, a tattoo on the wrist here or whatever. We can match it up. We have databases and it, it's nearly instant. Not always flowing well from nation to nation and maybe... Uh, that's a that's an issue for EU. That's not for me as an outsider to sit here and, and say, how much should that information go from one country to another? What I do know is that thieves get away with lying in front of a judge in one country if he has a sentence in another. And if there was perfect coordination, the judge would instantly know that this guy is a career criminal over there. So, so that's just a, a small example. Uh, other than that, Uh, I believe that this is a dialogue that you can have with much brainier people than I am. 
on this subject matter, more experienced, who can give you fabulous insight. Yeah, <laughs> and and I'll uh, try to think of someone who can actually, I, I could talk to, would be very interesting and fas fascination conversation. Maybe a good sure. hacker. I'm already in touch with someone. I'm already in touch with someone uh, and it's probably coming up in the next month or two. Um, I've reached out to someone who um, did some amazing stuff and I'll just try to get him in front of the camera, but we'll see. I'm, well, I'm working I have, on that. I have some good hackers for you. Maybe some oh, of the best in the world, but they are what I would call social engineer, meaning they are uh, able yes, to, yes. Uh, to be, they are as good with breaking down the personal barrier as they are with the, the technology of the computer. And the best criminals sometimes are the ones who are fabulous social engineering. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. Um, so I want to circle back to, to um, yourself and, and um, your career. Um, you mentioned you worked with law enforcement. Um, you also had uh, this amazing career in entertainment and showbiz. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what do you think is your recipe for success? And um, you know, how did you also get in touch with, for example, law enforcement? How did you get started? I, I know you, uh, when we talked uh, um, privately, you mentioned that um, in the beginning of your career, you had uh, like your evening activity as a showmaster and, and the daytime job, which was um, in another area of, of business, let's put it this way. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's very fascinating to hear from people like you how this worked out. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me for coughing, success, yeah. That's, a, that's a, a question that young people, of course, are asking all the time today. How can I quickly uh, afford to buy an Aston Martin? Well, um, <laughs> in my case, it was nothing confusing at all. When I was young, it just, the, the road forward was so clear you know i would be 16 years old lying in bed in stockholm sleeping and i had bought the first issue of the playboy magazine <laughs> and in the playboy magazine was a story on the rat pack rat pack i don't know yep, if you remember yep. the rat pack yes uh, uh, one of frank them sinatra was and Sam, sammy davis and and frank sinatra but sammy davis in the photos had a red jacket and black pants And it was a tuxedo jacket, and he looked tremendously cool to this young, semi-nerdy Swede back in Stockholm. <laughs> I cut off that, that picture. And uh, <clears throat> later when I came to Hong Kong, I went to a tailor, and I said, could you make me this jacket? And he said, yes. So I, I made a copy. But <clears throat> what I'm trying to tell you is I knew when I was 16 that I was going to be standing on stage in Las Vegas when I was 25. And I did. And when I did my compulsory military in Sweden, we all had to do just like in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. um, I told them when I was 17, 18 years old, I am going to be in Las, Vegas, in Las Vegas. And they laughed and they said, ha, 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 ha. If you are in Las Vegas, I will be in the front row. Some of the guys were saying, <clears throat> well, then <clears throat> late, one of them, by the way, he got a sickness, um, diabetes and so forth. And he was the one who was He became a radio host and became famous. And by the time I was in Las Vegas at age 25, he had just died from this diabetes, too young. Mm -hmm. But uh, the point of it is no one from those guys were in the front row. So if you want to know about how to be focused as a young person, it, it basically comes down to nothing else matters. 
you have absolutely no desire of anything but. So you cut everything else off. I would hitchhike across Europe when I was 18 to London. Uh, it took me four days from Stockholm, very little money. I would go into those gas stations uh, where you had the, uh, the, the, the cars, you know, the, the um, <clears throat> I forgot the, uh, the word for these long uh, vehicles that uh, transport uh, um, uh, food and whatever, you know, the, the uh, commercial drivers. And I would say, mm -hmm. can I sit with you? Could you drive me from here to there? And uh, so I wasn't necessarily standing in the street doing this. And I got to London, meaning this way, um, over the ferry from, from Holland. And I knocked on the door to do BBC, can I, can I do television? And he said, yeah, you can, we can do that uh, two months from today. I will go back to Sweden and I will hitchhike again. <clears throat> and I would do the thing. I was so stupid and so corny and so <clears throat> ridiculous in the beginning to have success. So when I was 20 years old, I sent out a letter to 50 food and beverage manager of the Hilton Hotel and the Intercontinental Hotels around the world. Lusaka, Nairobi, Karachi, 20 years old. What the hell did I know about getting work? So these letters, I got two replies. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. One from Karachi. So I got a booking in Karachi. Borrowed some money for the ticket. I was repaid later in, in rupees or whatever. And then I had a long career out there. Paid very little money. But the reason why I'm saying this is there was never any question in my mind. There was no doubt. I was never on thin ice. I, you know, I was a chance taking, of course, but I was approaching and knocking on doors, didn't get too much paid. Sometimes I lived in cheap whorehouses in the Philippines because they were the <laughs> cheapest places for the room in order to perform in the club. And in the club in those years, they, uh, the Filipino men were packing guns. So when I took them up on stage of steel, they would take my right hand and they moved it over to their jacket here in order to make me feel, aha, there's a gun in there. Don't mess with that side. <laughs> so, you know, paid very little. In Vietnam, I worked there for the, for the, for the soldiers uh, in the camps up and down. Again, you know, shitty money. But uh, I worked, I had photography as my second passion. So I was a, what we call a photography stringer. You know, that's a term that they give when you don't have a real assignment. You work on the side. Whenever you come across a story, you send it on. So this was a sort of a small Scandinavian uh, um, association of papers. And I would send over my stories to Sweden and uh, very little money. Well, I had a friend, a mentor who was um, a significant photographer and uh, uh, he um, was about maybe nine years older than I am. He took me uh, on the day that the burning monk, the suicide monk, 1963 in June, June 21st, he knocked on my door at four o'clock in the morning, Bob, hurry up, come with me here. And we went out to this uh, uh, pagoda, this uh, um, compound where the monks were and where this man who was going to kill himself uh, was sitting semi-drugged and they poured petrol over him and he set himself alight. I had no idea that that was going to be a significant photo. My friend, that became Time Life, a New York Times front page cover. My thing got very small coverage. Um, my picture was the same. They were great, but 
my point of it all is I was there at the right time. The success came from this outgoing persona, never taking no. I guess some of these people uh, felt that I was an intriguing young man with a huge appetite on life. And that is what, what helped me. Later, when I was around 30 years old, um, I developed a business sense. So when I was working wherever I, for 10 years, when I worked different casinos and clubs, I would go and knock on the door of the management and I would say, you know, you don't have enough people here in your showroom. I know how we can get another two, 300 people in. I said, what are you crazy? I was in the Bahamas, for example. Mm -hmm. said, well, how are you going to get that in? I said, well, we, we designed a flyer and then we paid the front desk manager of these various hotels. This is in Freeport in the Bahamas to have a little stack sitting uh, mm -hmm. of our show. And people, there's a coupon at the bottom of this flyer, discount. Remember, this was a long time ago. Nobody was doing this. And I, the management gave me a mini moke, a little uh, cheap uh, um, motor uh, a car with open windows or sides. And I would go every day to the different hotels, put the stack in, get people in. And the management said, I can't believe this. They didn't ever want to fire me. They wanted to hold on to me. But after two <laughs> years, I said, enough is enough for the Bahamas. But that was my philosophy. And that is, I think, the reason for success. Yeah. Uh, so never give up, never give up, have a vision and follow despite any difficulties and any, any roadblocks you might encounter. Well, um, you know, other people, uh, <clears throat> today when they, when I come in contact and they wonder, there's a lot of young people, entertainers who are saying, you know, how do I do this? How do I get, if I take <clears throat> getting a booking, for example, I will ask myself, what is it that the management really want in the entertainer? Why would they select this versus that versus that? So you have to kind of break down all of the blocks uh, for any success, for selling anything for that matter. Mm -hmm. What is it that they want? What is it I don't have yet that is going to clench the deal? And uh, if it is knowledge, if it is that my product isn't strong enough, I have to bring it in different ways. I have to cut it off in its smallest ingredient, look at that whole pattern and now say, how can I fill in the gap so that that person will buy me? When I was in Las Vegas for a long time and I was tired of working in Las Vegas, I wanted to finish working there because they stood in the wings with a stopwatch. And they said, if you go over a minute more than you're supposed to do, we have 450 tourists who are here by bus and they're going to leave the showroom and go out to the machines and play slots. And those 250 who stand by the slots, we will make, um, uh, let's say, $250 from them, from those people for 10 minutes if they stand mm -hmm. there. Or, or for, for the three. If, so if I went over, they could calculate if I, did, if I did a great show and I didn't know. And I said, oh, my God, look at how great yeah. I am. And I would do an extra three minutes and thinking that, oh, standing ovation, everyone is happy. And management said, are you crazy? Don't you remember the contract says you, you went over? And then they said... <sighs> Bob, you can continue and go over, but for every minute that you go over, we're going to deduct $250 from your weekly salary. At that point, I realized I bought a stopwatch in white and I taped it to my white shirt. 
And regardless of where I was in my show, 10 seconds before I was up, I said, goodbye, and I was off. Do you follow <laughs> me? But, but the point of the story is I wanted to end Vegas and do what we call corporate shows. I would be sending out material, packages, promotional things that had all of the building blocks that I thought was important for the recipient. Mm, okay, okay, okay. Um, you mentioned that for you, it was most important to entertain people and to make people laugh. What, what are the things that make people laugh? Laugh. Well, um, that was um, how I analyzed uh, myself. I mean, you know, when you are a little bit nerdy, 50, 16 years old, I was very tall, very skinny. And it was one my way of, I had a friend of mine who became a very famous movie producer, maybe the most famous executive producer in Sweden, produced all kinds of famous films. <clears throat> and he was exceptionally good looking and had an unbelievable charm. He would three minutes in front of a girl and they would drool and they want to be with him. <laughs> he was my best friend. Well, I was skinny and tall and they did not drool, but I could make them laugh and had a persona. So the two of us were very successful, but for different reasons. So uh, I was um, not necessarily the class clown, but I certainly realized the juxtaposition of comedy. So that was my, my inspiration. That's what was mm -hmm. driving me. But the last 15 years, it's not the comedy that drives me. It's the whole thing with, uh, with law enforcement and uh, correcting certain falseness and, and uh, bits in society where I can pull my five cents. You know, we all have to do what we can to correct. And uh, uh, it has been maybe more enjoyable, that journey, than the 15 or 20 years before when I would only, where I would make people laugh. Do you understand the difference between the two? Yeah, I do. I do. Absolutely. And they're both completely valid reasons to be motivated for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bob, we, we went on for over two hours and I want to be respectful of your time and uh, not keep you for too long. Um, so there are two questions that I always um, ask everyone that I'm talking to. And the first of those questions is, This is a series of interviews with extraordinary people. So people who do and achieve things no one else achieves or who inspire other people or who make other people laugh and laugh and, and entertain them like you do um, or try to make this world a better place like you do right now with, with your efforts in law enforcement. Um, who do you consider to be someone extraordinary? Well, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great question and I can tell you that in years past, it changed every 10 years. So, for example, when I was uh, from year 20 to 30, there were certain uh, comedians. One is called Fats <coughs> Leonard. Now, you wouldn't mm -hmm. know who he is. Uh, he was very big in the United States. Uh, and uh, um, he was what we call an insult comedian. We have other comedians in America Yep. who got their training in Catskill. Catskill is a resort area north of New York uh, that caters in those years, in the 50s and 60s, basically 90% of a Jewish crowd. And that humor was very kind of cutting. It wasn't nasty, but it was cutting, acid, because that's what the people wanted. 
I was uh, flabbergasted. I couldn't understand how he built the material. He was my idol. Uh, and uh, then from year 30 to 40, there were certain um, black uh, comedians that were what we call spritzing, loose on stage, and it looked as if things were just happening. You know, mm -hmm. there was no rehearsal. There was nothing where they dragged up a piece that they had fine-tuned and so forth. So they were my idols. And then when uh, I got into my 50s, um, it would be uh, a great global entrepreneurs and people who, um, uh, you know, changed society. But the last, I would say, 10 years, it is people who nobody, certainly not you and certainly not our listen listeners would know about. It's basically very committed police officers who work undercover or intelligence officers who are exceptionally committed, who are way above the rest of society in, in how they, just like yourself, Daniel, I find you very committed to what you do, your hours, how you stay working harder and more hours than the rest. You have a, a great appetite positive appetite. You want more and, and, you know, there's a smile. There's that great harmony of more. There are certain young people in Europe uh, and a few in America that I find that with, and I love to hang with them. But unknown people who um, should have credit, they are my idols today. That's great. Would be very fascinating to talk to one of those people, to talk to one of those people. Maybe I will try and put you together. Now, they may not always have a skill set to um, uh, project everything. Uh, where, you know, sometimes, I mean, if you take people who um, work, for example, SEAL units, that's a, a term we have in mm -hmm. America for military intelligence, very mm -hmm. small units, each one is a specialized. The number of hours that they, that they, that they exercise and stay committed, their knowledge, how they shine right away. So when you see them with a group, you, you say, oh my God, wow, how did that happen? How did that get picked up? Yeah. Do you understand me? I do, I do. And uh, Bob, my last question, and I want to close the interview with that is, um, what's your message to everyone who's listening or who's watching this? What's your message to the world? Well, tricky, tricky, tricky question, because I want it to be as fast as possible. I think the first thing is um, take everything with a pinch of salt in terms of the truth. I don't tell, I'm not going to say to you, be as cynical as I am, because that means you filter your life through slightly less positive things. So you, you know, you still have to be happy and enjoy and trust your wife and your life and your children and the forward and all of that. And so being super cynical is not necessarily smart. Um, But I do think that we can all start to say to ourselves, everything we see around us, especially media and blogs and uh, uh, Instagram and viral messages, everything, there is a reason that is commercial to make your money go from your pocket into either their pocket or that company, whether it's a travel site. For example, if you're going to go on a uh, safari or on a cruise, the way you see the images, 
and the way um, it looks unbelievably gorgeous, how they have isolated and bombarded your brains with this stuff because they know it has an effect and it reaches in and they have researched it in advance with their the spe special groups that they have analyzed. So um, I, I would say take things with a pinch of salt of truth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It was a very fascinating conversation. There are many topics that I could go on for hours with you, but um, let's let's close it uh, here. To anyone who's watching or listening, make sure to uh, check out Bob's website, Bob, uh, bobarno.com. Um, there's also a great blog with his wife, Bambi, called Thief Hunters. Uh, make sure to check it out. Very fascinating stories. You see also snippets of his show. Um, really entertaining, really fun to watch. And um, Bob, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And in closing from my end, you of are course. allowed to edit whatever, wherever I got wordy. It, it, it seems that my biggest problem is to say what I think in as few words as possible. <laughs> I think this makes you very sympathetic. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for watching. And in a few seconds, you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change, that's what's most important to me. But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website you will find all current and upcoming episodes including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content, so don't forget to sign up and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Shanti Hodges. In July 2013, she organized a simple hiking trip with a few of her friends and their newborn kids. But little did she expect that this meeting would turn into Hike It Baby, the largest hiking organization in the US, with hundreds of thousands of families involved in 300 branches around the world and over 2,500 monthly hikes. Rob and Shanti talk about how hiking actually changes your brain chemistry, why it's so important for kids to be outdoors, how she grew the organization massively in just five years, and much more. Join the conversation now at robconrad.com.